Okay, so hey, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're calling this series Secure. And last week, we noted that we live in a fallen world. In other words, we live uh, in a world where bad things happen. This world doesn't function the way that we would like it to or as God originally intended. Um, In fact, we know this from Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good Indeed, God declared his original creation good. But if you were to look around today, nobody would look around at our world and say that it's good. I mean, there is suffering, there's death, there's pain, there's disappointment. Note the words that Paul uses to describe uh, creation. He uses words like suffering and bondage and decay and pain. And, uh, you know, and the residue of a perfect creation kind of tells us it shouldn't be this way, but it is. And we know that it is because of sin. We talked about this last week, specifically Adam's sin. Uh, But it's very, very important to remind ourselves what that sin was because uh, we we think, well, you know, Adam took some fruit from a tree that God asked him not to take fruit from. Well, it's much darker and more insidious than that. The reality is Adam refused to trust God. By eating that fruit, Adam was saying, I don't trust you to provide the best life for me, God. I think I know how to live my best life without you. I reject your instruction. I reject your love. I reject your wisdom. I reject you, and I vote for me. That was a huge blow to the heart of God, and that earned our world thousands of years of physical misery but you need to know that that's what happens in a world where people reject God and they vote for themselves now this week we're going to learn that even in a world like that God makes an incredible promise in a world filled with pain and suffering and disappointment these words friends are a treasure here's what they say Romans 8 28 we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. These words are so important. So I want to tell you a couple things this verse does not mean. First of all, it does not mean that God causes all things. He's just spent an ent- almost an entire chapter, right? Paul has telling us that we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world, a world that no longer functions or operates the way that God intended. So sometimes, you know, because of the law of gravity, we may fall and we may break a, a leg or an arm. God didn't do that. That's just the law of gravity at work. We may catch a disease, right? We may get sick or fall ill, Uh, That happens because we live in a fallen and a broken world. Uh, The second thing I would just say, the reason God doesn't cause all things, is we have to remember that we have an enemy. Uh, In fact, Jesus referred to him as a thief. Here's what he said, John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come so that they might have life and have it to, you know, to the full. Now, Paul called him not only a thief, uh, Jesus called him a thief and a liar. Paul called him the God of this age, the God of this world. And he specializes in death and destruction. So like anytime you look and you see a war, I am never tempted to say, well, there's God. God caused that war. 
No, God doesn't cause stuff like that. We have an enemy. The enemy specializes in that kind of thing. And then finally, sometimes bad things happen to us just because we make stupid decisions or we do dumb things. In other words, we bring it on ourselves. So, for example, I'm rehabbing a bum shoulder right now. I may have to have surgery on it, not because God is punishing me, because I'm, but because I'm a man in his 50s who wants to compete like he's a man in his 20s. It's just on me right? Sometimes we just do dumb things to ourselves. I'll tell you something else this verse does not mean. It does not mean that God works all things for your comfort. It does not mean that God works all things for your pleasure. It does not mean God works everything for the good of your bank account. It also doesn't mean that everything just kind of has a way of working out. That if you're patient enough, you know, that everything will just kind of come out in the wash. If you're older than about 15, you know that simply isn't true. I also want you to notice that this promise isn't for everyone. It is for those who love God. This is one of the reasons why I would say if you're in the room this morning and you're considering Christianity thinking about saying yes to Jesus, that that day should be the day. I'll tell you why. Because this promise isn't for you if you don't love God, if you aren't growing in your love for God. So I would ask the question, I mean, kind of just check your heart. Can you say, I really love God? Now, Scripture gives us some litmus tests for how we can know that. John says, hey, to love God is to keep his commandments. Jesus says, hey, if you love me, I want you to love others, and I want you to love them well, right? So this just goes on and on and on. Uh, This is only a promise to men and women whose hearts are fixed on God. It's so important. And then he notes, and then he, he says, not only is it made to men and women who love God, but they're called according to his purpose and then in the next verse he's going to tell us exactly what his purpose is Uh, here's what it says for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that's his purpose right there that's what we're called to that's your calling and mine to be conformed to the image of his son That's why we're here. That's why you're here. So everything that happens in your life and mine, everything that blows in and out of our lives is designed to conform us to the image of his son. Now, he uses a couple of words we don't use a lot in our culture. First, he says that those he foreknew. uh, So this means that God simply knows in advance. Uh, So, for example... Um, God isn't bound by time. Some of you may haven't ever thought about this because God created time. God is in this moment, he's in tomorrow's moment, and he's in yesterday's moment. God exists outside of time and space. So that means God knows the future. He knows what we're going to say, what we're going to do. I would argue the term here means he knows who is going to be in Christ. He knows who is going to say yes to Jesus. And then we're told people like that, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, 
The word predestined is only used in reference to believers, and it means to decree beforehand. So God knew beforehand, then he decreed beforehand, and what he decreed was that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's his commitment to you and to me. Now, I do want to very briefly, and then we're going to blow past this point. There are some that would say that when it says God foreknew, that he just simply chose people. That he just simply chose who was going to be saved and who wasn't. Um, and I think there's just some verses that rack that perspective. I'll share one of them with you. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, this is good. He's, he's asked uh, people to pray for everybody, especially for kings and people in authority. And then he says, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth so we know that so, so it to me it makes no sense for God to reach out and choose certain people if we're told very plainly that he wants everybody to come to faith and to be saved but we're going to move on to the promise his purpose his decree he's predestined you is to make you more like Jesus that means he wants you to think more like Jesus he wants me to love more like Jesus he wants me to forgive more like Jesus you can go on and on and on but he wants me to think and talk more like Jesus and then he tells us why that he, that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's just saying, look, it brings glory to Christ when you look like him. When you're conformed to the image of Jesus, uh, that glorifies him. And you and I, friends, every one of us in the room, are meant to live lives that glorify God. There is nothing more important in your life and mine than the residue of God's glory in your life. When you are bringing glory to Jesus, you are in the sweet spot of your universe. When you make much of Jesus, you are fulfilling life's purpose for you. But let's go back to the promise. We've already talked about what it doesn't mean, so we need to now kind of talk about what it does mean. Romans 8, 28, let's put it back on. Oh, it's already a step ahead of me. So God works all things together for good to those who love him, who were called according to his purpose. So here's the promise. It means that God takes everything that blows into your life, the really good and the really tragic, even the unfair things, anything that blows into your life, and he takes those things and he weaves a beautiful tapestry out of that. It means that God is always working in your life to bring about your good, whether in a joyful moment or a sorrowful moment. He's always doing that. And so let me tease out some of those. So in other words, God's working even out of your hardship and your tragedy. So for example, those times when you hear back from the doctor and the test results don't look good. It's those moments when the head of HR walks into your workspace to tell you that your name is on a list of reductions the company has to make. It's those times when you get a call from a family member telling you that your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister isn't going to make it. It's those times when the foreclosure notice arrives and you know you're going to lose your house. 
What he's saying is that in those moments, God is committed to working for your good. For your good. This is a promise that God, as hard and painful as this world can be, will take all of the pain and all of the suffering and recycle it in our lives in a way that benefits us and makes us more like Jesus. And I want to point out something that maybe some of us haven't thought about before. Sometimes pain is absolutely necessary for healing. We know this in our world. So if you're going to go to a dentist to fix a tooth that's hurting, what is that dentist going to have to do? That dentist is going to have to drill out that tooth. That dentist is going to have to inflict more pain in order to bring about the healing of that tooth. Sometimes a bone has to be set, a broken bone has to be set before it can heal properly that's painful when someone goes to counseling they have to talk through some pretty painful stuff for them in order to find healing right sometimes when we get sick or to prevent us from getting sick sometimes we have to take a shot that's not fun I have a story about this true story so a couple of years ago my wife and I were both in dentist chairs she was in one room in a chair I was in the other room in a chair and they were giving me a shot to numb my mouth so I wouldn't you know suffer through the the surgery right and as they were numbing my mouth I could just feel the room start to spin and then suddenly I'm out the next thing I remember they're they've got they've broken like an ammonia and they they're sticking it in my nose and the nurse walks into my wife's room and says hey are you doing okay and she says yeah I'm fine she says well you should probably pray for your husband because he's out (laughs) you know it's just not fun right See, the promise here is that God will use everything in your life, the painful stuff and the really good stuff, for your good. Let me just give you a couple of examples from my own life. So many of you know that when I was 12 years old, my mom died after a lengthy stay in the hospital. And her death was a huge loss for our family. And in the moment that it takes a human heart to beat, my life changed forever. But what I need you to know is that God brought incredible good out of that really, really tragic and hard thing. Because what her death did was yank my life into a completely different trajectory. I would say this, that her death woke me out of my slumber. It was through her death that my heart woke up to the reality of God. And eventually... God used the death of my mom to bring me to Jesus. He made me a searcher through her death. And you need to hear me say that my relationship with Jesus is the great treasure of my life. I wouldn't trade anything for it. There is nothing more important to me than him. There is no one I love in this world more than him. And it was my mom's death that got me there. Now, I guess, you know, you could say, well, couldn't God have used a less painful way to bring Jesus into your life? But that's not the point. The point is that God is committed to bringing good out of the bad things that blow in and out of our lives. I'll give you another one. So many of you know that our oldest son, Aaron, is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He went to Ball State to get his meteorology degree. It took him four and a half years to get it. 
And when he graduated, he began to immediately apply to offices all over the country. Uh, He applied, and he applied, and he applied, and he applied, and he applied for uh, a little over two years, about two years and three months. He kept applying, and it was crickets. And uh, as he was applying for jobs, his mom and I, for over two years, were praying and praying and praying and praying. And uh, at about the 18-month mark, I was getting a little testy with God. Like, I'm like, God, you know, here we are. We're like praying and praying and praying. This isn't changing. You're not doing anything. You know, come on. Pick it up. Pick up the pace. You know, don't look at me like that. You've all had conversations like this with God, too. I know you have. Well, now, while he was applying and while he was waiting, you need to know that he worked nights here at Knopf. And that's very, very important that you know that. And so, you know, during that two years, we're counseling him, we're encouraging him. And uh, so he finally gets a call from the National Weather Service office in Shreveport, Louisiana. He had several interviews. They eventually offer him the job. So we go down there to help him move into his new apartment. And one of the managers in his uh, office, somebody, one of the guys that was responsible for hiring him, said to us, hey, did you know that we got 150 applicants for this one job? I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no, and get, get this. He said, take a guess how many of those 150 people had a master's in meteorology or a doctorate. And now remember, Aaron just has his bachelor's. So I said, I don't know, maybe what, 10%? He said, no, 80% of those 150 people had master's level work or, or master's degree or a doctorate in meteorology. And, and so I asked the obvious question, why the heck did you hire Aaron, right? And here's what he said. He said, we looked at his resume and we absolutely loved that he had spent the last two years working nights in a factory. We love that because every third week our meteorologists have to work a week of nights. And sometimes we'll hire people with a master's degree or a doctorate and they'll come in and they'll say things like this. We're not really comfortable working nights. We don't want to Because, you know, the National Weather Service is a 24-7 office, right? It has to stay open all the time. They said, but we knew from Aaron's track record that he'd stick with it. And we liked that he paid off all of his student loans while he was working at Knopf. That showed us that he had self-discipline and was able, uh, you know, to persevere. So the very thing that I was getting impatient with God about was the very thing that God used to get him employment in the National Weather Service. This is how God works, friends. Now, listen, there are three groups of people here in the room. When we talk about pain, some of you are in the room and you are in what I would call pre-pain. I mean... You know, even in a broken world, right, there's some people you can, who can go 20, 25, maybe even 30 years without anything bad ever happening to them. Doesn't happen very often, but it can. So maybe, that's, maybe you're here and, you, you know, you're one of the lucky ones, right? If that's you, then this verse, Romans 8, 28, 
It's just a theory. That's all it is. I mean, to you, this just sounds like a nice sentiment. This sounds like maybe something you'd see on a Hallmark card, right? And so you're going to maybe tuck it in your back pocket, and you, maybe you think, well, maybe I'll pull it out one day, like, when I need it, right? Well, listen, I would deeply urge you, if you're pre-pain, to meditate on this truth, to get it deep down inside you, to plant it so deeply in your heart Because one day, you're going to need it. And if you just stick it in your back pocket and you forget about it, when that day comes, you won't endure that day very well. I'll talk more about that later. You better work it into your heart now so that when that day comes, you can stand strong and true on this promise. Now, there's a second group of us here who are just in the middle of it, like We're going through it like right now. And to us, this verse is a lifeline. I mean, it brings hope into the darkest of circumstances. Hey, even in this, God is working. Amen? We have to cling to this. We have to hold on to this promise for what it is. It is a lifeline. Because this is the promise that will see us through. God, please use this for my good. And then there is a third group of us. Some of us are coming out of a really hard season. So, you know, maybe we're behind pain. The pain is kind of behind us, but maybe it's lingering. But you're still waiting for God to bring that good something, you know, the good out of the pain that you've been through. And so for you, I would say this promise is a treasure. It's a treasure. There is nothing more important to grasp for life in this world than this truth. And so I would encourage you, hold on to this. Wait patiently on the Lord. Wait expectantly on the Lord to bring good out of that pain that you had to do. And you just need to remind yourself that God is completely committed to taking all that you've been through and using it for good in your life. Your pain has not been and it will not be in vain. Now, here's why this promise becomes so important. If someone is going to walk away from God, if someone is going to drop out of a church, if someone is going to stall in their spiritual growth or their spiritual development, if somebody's going to quit reading their Bible, or if somebody's going to pull out of community, out of a small group with other followers of Jesus, and we know this, the vast majority of time, do you know why they stall out spiritually and pull off the side of the road while other people continue to move toward God? Because circumstances blow into their life and they have a moment with God where they say something like this, God, if this is the way you're going to treat me, I'm out. That's why it's so important to grasp 
this promise. The vast majority of time, it happens when someone bumps up against adversity or hits a wall. I mean, maybe they lose somebody that they love. They endure a season of great financial hardship or a season of chronic pain. Or they're just in in an incredibly difficult marriage. And they ask God to, to change their marriage over and over and over again. And it just isn't happening. And in their disillusionment, they just kind of give up and they they shake an angry fist at God and they say, I'm out, I'm going to quit praying, I'm going to quit reading my Bible, I'm going to quit going to church because I don't want to just sit and pretend, you know, that that it's all going to work out. Friends, this promise, if you get it deep down inside of you, will keep you from stalling out in your relationship with Jesus. It will sustain you and feed you and keep you engaged with God. It will rescue you from the tailspin and the stall of that disappointment. It will keep you moving towards God. And I want you to notice that this isn't even the only promise. I mean, as incredible, as life-changing as this promise is, it isn't even the only promise in this section of Scripture. It gets even better. So look at, at chapter 8, verse 30. It says, and those he predestined, we already said what predestined was, right? Predestined is to decree beforehand. He also called, and those he called, and I love this word, he also justified justified. Now, this is a really, really important word, and I want us to get our arms around it. So here's an easy way to think about the word justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. But it even goes deeper than that. I want to show you a verse that Uh, perfectly uh, is a perfect definition for the term justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it isn't just that justification is the removal of my sin, What God does is he takes my sin and he exchanges it for the righteousness of Christ. It isn't just that my sin is taken away, it's that it's replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. That's what justification is, just as if I'd never sinned. And only God does that. Notice we don't do it, only he does. And then... So this is kind of another way of saying, look, your suffering is going to one day produce great glory in your life. One day, you you know, you're going to be glorified and all the suffering of this world is going to pale in comparison to the glory that you know. And then look what he says in verses 31 and 32. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Listen, friends, I don't, I don't know what you're up against right now. I don't know if you've bumped into adversity, if you've hit a wall. I don't know, but I know this. God is for you. He's not put off by you. He is for you. Would you just, you don't have to say it out loud, just under your breath. 
God is for me. Because there are some of us in the room, we walked in here, and the way we think about God is that God is up in heaven, and he's just waiting for you or me to make a mistake so he can pounce. So, you know, he can just bap you and punish you, hit you over the head or whatever, right, for your sin. That isn't God. God is for, it isn't just that God loves you, he is for you. Now listen, again, we just need to say, all right, let's talk again about what this means and what it doesn't mean. When we say that God is for you, it does not mean that God is for your agenda, Every one of us in the room, when we first became a Christian, we come to Jesus, and we come to Jesus with an agenda for him, right? Something that we hope or want him to do for us. So, so we say things like this, Jesus, thank you, heal my marriage, or heal my body, or grow my bank account. Or, I mean, whatever it is, right? We all want Jesus to do stuff for us. We all want Jesus to be our personal butler. And, and listen, that's okay. We all come to Jesus that way. I came to Jesus that way. All of you came to Jesus the same way. But at some point, we have to be willing to trade out our agendas for His at some point, we have to love him more than we love ourselves. At some point, we have to acknowledge, hey, God, you're a lot smarter about life than me. I'm going to go after your agenda and set my agenda aside. I mean, this is just, at some point, we have to begin to have these kinds of conversations with God. So important. And listen, the Lord of heaven and earth is not your personal butler. He's not my personal butler. But he is for me, just not my agenda. In fact, sometimes God loves us, you know, like sometimes we'll say it this way, right? That God loves us when we're sinners, but he loves us far too much to let us stay that way. It's the same thing that happens when, when we switch our small agendas for his grand, glorious, big agenda. So, and then he goes, he, then, he's, then he's, he kind of illustrates, look, here's how I can say, here's why I can tell you that God is for you. Look what he says next. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him Grant us everything. He says, you want to know how I can know God is for you? Because he sent his son to die in your stead, in your place, to pay the penalty that you and I deserved. Jesus took that on. That's how I know that God is for you because of what Jesus has done. Now, Paul's doing something very important here. And it's so important that we, again, this is just another one of those truths we've got to get deep down into our hearts. What Paul is doing is he's filtering everything that comes into his life through the lens of the gospel. In other words, yeah, it's true that I don't know how I'm going to pay my house payment this month, but Jesus died for me. So I know God loves me. I know God is for me because Jesus suffered and bled on a cross for me. So I know God isn't punishing me here, and I can probably trust him to provide. So hey, 
I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to ask God to, to provide. You see, you see, this works for everything, friends. Every hard thing, every tragic thing, every bad thing that blows into your life, if you will look at it through the lens of the gospel, it will redeem the circumstances that you're in. Now, it's not going to make it magically better. I get that. But the stories that you tell yourself matter so much. So you have to learn to filter bad things through the lens of the gospel. And the argument here is from lesser to greater. This is really cool. You probably wouldn't pick it up if you just read it casually. Here's his argument. Here's what he's saying. If when we were sinners... God gave his best, his son. Then, now that we are God's children, will he not give us everything that we need? Let's kind of look at the progression again. If when we were sinners, God gave his very best, his son. Now that we are God's children, will he not give us everything that we need? Everything that he has? Do you see isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful progression. And then look at verses 33 and 34. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Well, we know who the one who condemns is, right? It's, it's the evil one. It's, it's, the, it's the one that Jesus called a thief and a liar. It's the one that Paul called the God of this age. You know that the book of Revelation says he stands before the throne of God hurling insults about the saints to God. Just like vicious attacks on your character, my character. Just vicious. And that he, uh, but, but look what this says. This is so incredible. But Jesus stands at the right hand of God in proximity to God. And he says, mm -mm, no. And look what it says. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. And, that's, and then he tells us why it's so important that the tomb is empty. Why it's so important that he's been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. This is so beautiful. Not only has he told us earlier that the Spirit intercedes for us, now he's telling us that the Son of God intercedes for us as well. Uh, and how? Well, because he didn't just die, he was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. So you might say that he lives to intercede for you. This is so incredible. Now, you, one way to look at this is this word intercede is a legal term. So one way to think about this is that Jesus is your attorney. You've been accused of a crime and Jesus is representing you uh, before the evil one. And he's representing you, and he's probably saying something like this. He's saying probably something along the lines of, Father, you already punished me for that sin. It wouldn't be fair to them for you to punish them too. It wouldn't be fair for you to punish two people for the sin of one. That wouldn't be fair. He's a good attorney, isn't he? He intercedes, and he lives to intercede. You know, so important. All right, here's what we're going to do. So earlier, I talked to three groups of people. I talked to the people that are 
that are, you know, before pain or pre-pain, God bless you. Then I talk to people that are uh, in the middle of it, and then I talk to people that are kind of coming out of it, but maybe the pain still lingers. And uh, so I want to invite Pastor Brandon to come up, and I've asked him to sing a very specific song that I want you to really, listen, I don't want you to just sing these words, I want you to soak in these words. I want them to go down deep, especially if you're in it. So let's just marvel together for a few minutes um, at God's work in our tragedy and in our pain, and then I'll come back up and close us out after, after we worship.